Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So I remember about seven or eight years ago, I was sitting down for lunch with David Carr, the media critic from the New York Times. We were having Italian food and we were just kind of powwowing and gossiping about the Times and all the people there and his years and years of as being a media reporter. And I said to him, who's the worst person that you've ever written about? And he said, Harvey Weinstein, without even blinking an eye. And years later, on October 5th, 2017, when that first story came out about Harvey Weinstein and all of the awful, vile things that he had done, I remember reading it and thinking like, holy shit, it finally happened. It finally came out. But no one had any concept that it was going to be the beginning of a movement that that we just couldn't have imagined. So many people who have, have fallen as a result of the Me Too movement, and rightly so, and yet... There are two people who haven't, Donald Trump and Brett Kavanaugh. My guests today are here to explain why and to explain what could happen with Brett Kavanaugh in the future and even Donald Trump. And they have a new book out called The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. It's an amazing, amazing book. My guests are Robin Pobegrim and Kate Kelly, both New York Times reporters. I'm really excited to talk to them about some new allegations in their book. I'm excited to talk to them about if Kavanaugh could ever actually be impeached and if we will ever see Donald Trump fall as a result of the things that he has done to women over the last 30, 40 years. So without further ado. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is very exciting. I'm always really excited when I have two guests and two smart guests. It's like sometimes, you know, you you kind of mix things up. But you guys, I'm very, very excited for this conversation. So we're actually recording this on the one-year anniversary uh, of Cap- of the whole the whole debacle, right? The, right, the very contentious hearing last year with yes. Dr. Ford, Christine Blasey Ford, and and Judge Kavanaugh. And um, first of all, hats off to writing and publishing a book in one year. I feel like a total and utter loser because uh, it takes me a lot longer than that. But um, but. I, there's so many things that I want to talk about and so many questions I have. But one thing that I, I as a reporter who has gone through this thing, I the, the, myself several times, I'm so fascinated what the reporting process was like with this. Like what was what you're, you're approaching the story that has been torn to shreds by everyone, no stir, stone unturned. Where do you begin and how do you kind of approach it in a way where you're like, okay, we are going to find things that no one has found before? Yeah, so I mean, Kate and I were both on the original team at the New York Times that was reporting on these hearings uh, a year ago. Um, we had personal connections to his story because Kate grew up in the D.C. area and she went to a girl's school that was sort of a, one of the schools in the milieu where um, Brett Kavanaugh went to school, which was Georgetown Prep, and I was a classmate of his at Yale. And so we brought our sort of personal uh, experience and connections to the reporting. And uh, when he was confirmed on October 6th, uh, we, we were left feeling that there was a lot still in our notebooks and there were threads that could still be pulled and pursued. And I think 
everyone was kind of unsatisfied by a process that felt hugely politicized, uh, very ugly, um, resonated with people on a lot of levels, both personal and political, and that we just wanted to kind of investigate more. And so we kind of started by uh, just going back at these different aspects of his past, his high school, his college experience, trying to build a clearer more complete picture of who Brett Kavanaugh was, as well as to examine this confirmation process, which uh, many people felt was very flawed, and an FBI investigation that many people uh, felt was circumscribed and too quick, and uh, uh, that there was uh, a lot of ground left still to cover. When you first um, – you're covering the hearing, uh, you know, I know what it's like when you're in that moment and you're on deadline and you're just trying to get the facts out and things like that. Was there a moment after the hearing where you were like, this is we, – we just have no choice but to do this. This is like the most important story we've covered in our careers or, wh- or what was that moment? Well, going back to September 27th of 2018, the hearing day that you're talking about – this, the story was ongoing because we didn't know what would happen with the confirmation vote. So there was a, a big effort to follow whatever leads we had and just continue going until events told us to stop. And that stopping point became October 6th, which is when the Senate voted to confirm uh, Judge Kavanaugh and he was sworn in. And that was a Saturday. And I remember thinking, boy, there are so many things in my notebook that I want to continue chasing and just kind of get answers. I'm curious. And I think uh, everyone I know and the broader public want to know more about what happened. And it was from there that we started talking about the book idea, because there was so much that was yet to be understood. And there was so much frustration, I think, about this FBI report that Robin mentioned, because the investigation that resulted in the report was very short and limited in scope, but even what did arise from it was kept under lock and key. The senators had one-hour slots to go look at it in a secret room on the Hill that's called a skiff, and they had one hard copy, and they were holding up copies and reading them aloud to each other at points. They were not allowed to take any notes, and those are the people that actually got to see the report. So for the rest of us, we had no idea what Mark Judge said in his multi-hour interview with the FBI, Mark Judge being the friend of Brett Kavanaugh's from high school who was allegedly in the room during the Ford assault. We had no idea what her friend Leland Kaiser had said, the one other uh, woman who had been allegedly at that party, Um, let alone, and I'm sure we'll get into this, all the many people from Yale who wanted to attest to the fact that Brett Kavanaugh is a college student, was a heavy drinker, and that ultimately what we found that there was more corroboration for the Debbie Ramirez allegations. Um, So... We didn't even know what the FBI knew, and what the FBI knew and shared with the senators was pretty limited, it turns out. And so there was just so much more that we wanted to figure out. When you first started doing the reporting, um, did you go – what I felt with the book was that you really went at it at a with a, um, a viewpoint like, okay, we're going to kind of look at this guy from scratch. We don't know who he is. We don't – you know, we're not going to offer our opinions on it, which is, is commendable because it's very difficult in a contentious case like this. Um, was it – was there a point where – was the question you were originally asking and was there a point when you kind of got to the answer uh, – of his guilt, was that something that you were constantly looking for? Or was it more of like, let's just paint a picture of who this guy is and let the reader decide? I think we wanted, um, clearly we were left feeling like, did these events happen or didn't they? Um, Like everybody did, was. 
But I think, what, <laughs> and we we grappled a lot between the two of us with, um, you know, do we need to come down one way or the other on whether this guy deserves to be on the court? We ultimately decided that that had been a question for the president and for the Senate and for our readers. Um, but what we could do was try to get a, a, a better handle on what actually had happened and and try to understand him as well as the process that got us to the point of confirmation. And so ultimately what we did was just kind of decide to lay out every possible fact that we could find. Um, and, and what we conclude and talk about in our epilogue is that um, – we believe the uh, Blasey Ford and the Deborah Ramirez allegations to be credible for various reasons that we lay out in the book, um, but that in 36 years since, um, a very different picture of Brett Kavanaugh emerges and one that kind of speaks to uh, an impressive record on the court in 12 years on the D.C. Circuit, uh, someone who's respected on both sides of the aisle as a human being and as a professional. Um, someone who um, is not known for his temper at all, even though that's the Brett Kavanaugh we saw on that day of his testimony, um, and also someone who actually um, went to great lengths to promote women on, on the bench um, in terms of hiring female clerks and then mentoring them through, her, through their careers. Uh, and so it's a nuanced picture that kind of will ultimately probably leave both uh, the kind of partisan camps uh, ultimately unsatisfied. Um, but that's where we came down. Well, so it's interesting you say that because I, I found that part of the book the most fascinating. It's all fascinating, you know, the, the way you kind of go into his history and the culture and we're going to get into all those things. But I'll jump to this end part. Like the the you say that you thought that he had changed. And, and, and yet when I saw him in that moment, when we also when you write about it with um, uh, Senator, Senator Klobuchar, where he just is so rude to her, it seems like what from my opinion, uh, that what had happened is that he had learned how to kind of play the good guy and that there were these moments where where the real person came out. And did you not feel that from, from the reporting? So the loss of temper in that moment was certainly real. Um, but there's a whole backstory to that moment that one needs to understand and that kind of uh, emerged from our reporting process. So if you think back to that week, he's under siege. He's been accused of sexual assault by Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, a story has come out about him uh, improperly exposing himself at a Yale party to Deborah Ramirez. And you also have these Julie Swetnick allegations of him and others participating in gang rapes of her and other women in high school. So these are extreme allegations, and things are in the balance for him. And he sits down with Fox News next to his wife, Ashley, in this kind of unremarkable-looking hotel room, and he's incredibly calm. And he says over and over again, I want a fair process. He offers up the fact that he was a virgin in college and for many years after. And he's just very firm in denying that these allegations are true, but very reserved. And in the period of time between that and September 27th, he got sort of whipped up by Don McGahn, the White House counsel, who told him, according to our colleague Carl Hulse's book, you need to reboot the room. You need to show how you feel and reset things after this gut-wrenching and sort of surprisingly quiet testimony by Dr. Ford. And then you have Mike Davis, the Republican uh, chief nominations counsel, who's kind of the senior staffer driving this process on the Senate Judiciary Committee saying, you need to come out swinging. And to be clear, he's already angry. And he's written a very angry set of opening remarks, but he just gets frothed up as well because 
behind the scenes, President Trump is wanting to see a big fight. So that's just some context for understanding the temper, but the temper was real. The report- I felt like I had, sorry, just interrupted. No, no. I felt like it was the, uh, I forget the movie, but with Jack Nicholson where he the where he's on the stand with um, uh, Tom Cruise and he's like, In a few you good can't men. handle the truth. That's right. Mm-hmm. I felt yeah. like it was like, that was the moment where he was like, I'm. this is who I am and I'm showing you. Well, I wouldn't also, I wouldn't necessarily say the anger was real. We don't necessarily know. It is Got conceivable it. Yeah. that um, this was a, a theatrics. Um, and, and they did, I think, for, for many people, uh, resonate with Clarence Thomas's performance mm-hmm. on his, um, which was very effective, obviously. I mean, both men were confirmed in the end and both kind of played this kind of angry, indignant, I've been wronged here. Um, you know, whether or not he was also just he was worked up because he was fighting for his personal and professional reputation, that's possible. And it's also possible that having been spurred by those advisors, as Kate said, and realizing he was playing to an audience of one being Trump, who likes to see someone kind of come out fighting, um, that maybe this was a performance. But but the other point here, Nick, is that we didn't focus on temperament per se. We were trying to basically do two things, profile Brett Kavanaugh yeah. and with a focus on the educational years and the confirmation, kind of how the educational years became relevant much later, if you will, and then also to investigate these allegations of misconduct. So those were our, our focal points. But from what we understood from people that we talked to, he is pretty even keeled. He got high marks from the American Bar Association for that until after these outbursts on September 27th. Former clerks, people who had argued in front of him, they all said he was a kind of fair, mellow, kind of composed guy. So that just provides some backstory to this. So let's go back and talk about him for a little bit. Um, There were things that kind of stood out to me uh, that – you know, th- he's growing up in this age where you've got, you know, like porkies and this kind of culture of of things that would never fly today. I mean, not in a million years. They uh, – these kind of crude jokes. It's a culture where – I mean, even the fashion senses back then were, were very provocative and pushing to the edge as far as they could. And he kind of – you know, I didn't hang out with these people. I wasn't cool enough to hang out with the, the Yale and Harvard uh, kids uh, when I was when I was younger. But, um, but they're drinking all the time and everything. Is it just that he is um, – he's just – this is what he's learning, that he's, he's seeing this and he is uh, surrounded by it and that's the kind of the world that he's coming of age in? I mean, I, I think we found that, you know, certainly in the 80s, this was well before the Me Too movement, well before there is sensitivity around this kind of behavior. Um, he is growing up in a largely all-male environment as a single sex, at a single-sex school. Um, I think that often lends itself to situations where uh, young men are not as used to being around women as peers and friends as opposed to kind of a more sexualized relationship. Um, and, you know, frankly, from our reporting, um, Kate looked at his high school um, years and, and you sort of find one source uh, described it as a kind of casual misogyny where they're disparaging women and kind of um, uh, kind of uh, quarterbacking after a, a weekend about people's conquests uh, sexually, whether or not those were uh, hyperbole or real. Um, and then when you get to Yale, he, he hangs out with a very kind of notably athletic, heavy, uh, heavy drinking crowd, um, which also um, classmates describe. Described as as somewhat um, kind of casually dismissive of women, and that. 
but he was kind of also ham-handed around them, frankly, awkward around women, and and perhaps used alcohol to kind of make himself feel more confident and com and comfortable. Um, so I, I think there was just a lot less awareness around these issues and and a kind of quietly sanctioned um, behavior that that really wasn't challenged at the time. Did you get the impression that um, he, you know, you write a lot about his drinking, about the throwing up, um, about the club he's a part of, the TNC club and the, and you Deke, know, the fraternity. Yeah. And he it's is he is he on the bleeding edge of of the drunkenness and the and the misogyny or is he just kind of one of everyone? And that's what they're all doing. I mean, our, our sense of, of the portrait of him, which is interesting, is that he's a little – he's more of a follower than a leader. Um, this was not a guy who necessarily initiated this this kind of behavior. What was kind of – what was striking was that uh, people described him as not standing out particularly. Mm. One classmate described him as um, ham on white. Um, and, I love that line. Um, <laughs> this whole idea that he, um, he fit in rather than stood out and I think perhaps went to some lengths to try to fit in and that that was uh, more important um, to him than uh, kind of making a name for himself. And, and he also was politically uh, not notable on campus. People don't remember him speaking out about issues, being in the forefront, raising his hand, joining things. He, he joined the Federalist Society in law school, but he certainly was not on the front lines in any way politically. We get the sense that Yale may have been kind of a shocking transition for him uh, because although he was coming from an elite academic institution in a major city and going to another elite institution, it was obviously a much bigger pond. And he was going from a senior class of 100 boys where he was a two-sport varsity athlete. He's captain of the basketball team. He's certainly one of the popular kids. As Robin said, not the instigator of things, but kind of a participant at times in bad behavior, a heavy drinker along with the crowd, at or near the top of his class. He gets to Yale and he doesn't make the varsity basketball team. And his grades are good, but he didn't graduate with honors. Am I right? Well, we're not sure about that. But but what you do have classmates saying, you know, that when they learned that he was going to Yale Law School and that he had done well, they were surprised. Yeah, were people those who text said, messages yeah, were fascinating. I didn't know Brett was smart. Um, yeah. And so he didn't stand out in that way to them as academically distinguished at the time. Is that because he is not? Or, or I mean, look, the reality is I've, I've you know, over the years – covered enough of these stories, you meet these senators and governors, and I will say, I will say probably like 80% of them that I've met are pretty fucking stupid. Like, you, <laughs> it is, in my personal opinion, like, they are not smart. What they are is driven. They are like, I am going to win this, I'm going to do this, and that's it. And they're not the brightest people. I mean, our president is not the brightest person, but it's this, it's this drive. Like, is Brett someone who... Um, who is not necessarily the smartest guy in the room, but the one who's the most driven? We actually have a, a law a school professor, George Priest, saying that he, he, know, he didn't really distinguish himself in my torts class, but I thought he had good manners on the basketball court. Um, and so that when um, Judge Kaczynski wanted a recommendation from George Priest for a clerk, he recommended Kavanaugh based on his uh, kind of courtroom behavior, court, uh, court, uh, not the courtroom, no, courtroom behavior, room, the basketball, <laughs> basketball court, court behavior. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I think also that what you point to with that ambition, people so talk about that with Kavanaugh, that this was a guy who had his eye on the prize early. And, and some assume as a result that he was very strategic in his decision-making as to making sure not to do anything that was sort of objectionable. Um, and that also he was just had a very clear idea of, of, of which um, sort of uh, boxes you need to check to ultimately get where he got. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. So in the book you talk, there's three main incidents that you discuss. There's uh, um, there's the Christine Blasey Ford, there's Ramirez, and uh, what's the third? It's a new allegation. The new allegation. I forget yeah. her name, though. We name her in the book. We haven't been naming her got on it. the air. Okay, got it. So there's three. And, and what I find striking is you kind of read all these stories about all of these incidents and you can have a viewpoint on on whether they happened or whether they didn't. But you know, I remember I remember doing graphics once at the New York Times, and, and one of the graphics editors said to me, you know, one thing is an opinion, and th- two or three is a st- is a statistic or it's a piece of data or a trend or a trend. And it's like you kind of get the impression that how could these things not have happened if there are s- there are three different incidents that that potentially did happen. And it's th- I guess there's a two two part question. Is one is after all of the reporting and the research you did, wh- do you place more validity on some of these events or less? And and the second part to that question is, it, you kind of say at the end, well, you know, he's changed as a person. Uh, what happened then happened then, and we, you know, we don't know necessarily. But let's just say, hypothetically speaking, that there was a recording of it. Do you think that he he still shouldn't have been named um, as uh, as the Supreme Court justice? So as to the first part of that question, um, and we can talk more about this if you like, but at the very end of the book, we kind of summarize the reporting that we did, uh, the new facts that we uncovered, and then we layer on to that kind of what we think, what our common sense tells us, having spent time with these women uh, who accused him of, of misconduct and doing all this other reporting as well. And we find Dr. Ford to be credible. Um, and substantiated, 1, right? In my opinion, <laughs> and then we find uh, Deborah Ramirez to be credible and also further corroborated, and then we have this third instance that we actually don't know a ton of details about, and the woman herself has told friends she doesn't remember it. She declined to talk to us about it, although she was helpful with some other things around the Yale experience because um, she was a classmate there. But we have a witness who's a respected figure in Washington and brought the information that he recalled about her and Kavanaugh to multiple Senate offices and the FBI. So just to dispatch with that, that's kind of where we land. And we talk also about the heavy drinking culture and the role that that can play with memory, all of which is to say we find these accounts credible, Kavanaugh has adamantly denied them, it seems possible to us that he truly doesn't remember even if they did happen. Although it's also possible he was less than candid about it. In terms of what should happen based on that information and our analysis, we have not taken an opinion. We feel like that's really above our pay grade. It's kind of for the citizenry and the empowered officials to decide. We've seen a range of reactions to our work when we get past the sort of shoot the messenger Insta reactions. The substantive (laughs) reactions have been a range from um, this was a witch hunt and, you know, the testimony of the accusers was false. And thank God for Justice Kavanaugh. He's a great guy doing a great job to impeach Justice Kavanaugh. And actually just today, Senator Kamala Harris, who's been calling for that kind of since a couple of days before our book came out, um, 
has written an essay about why she thinks the House should launch an impeachment inquiry into him. And then, as you know, other Democratic candidates have said he should be impeached. And then there's kind of a middle ground that some people occupy, which is to say, why not have an investigation of the investigation? Like, at a minimum, let's just see what happened here if the FBI did their job. Yeah, but- I mean, I think that, that that's the, that is the part for me that it, it would be it would be a totally different conversation if the FBI did their job. And that to me, and I don't blame the FBI. I, I, I think, you know, this is way above their pay grade. But I think that what is so infuriating as a human being to see this take place and to see the bravery which Ford came forward with and so on, and that she's not given a fair trial, like that is, are, are there, was that, did that give people more of a reason to talk to you? Or was it was it something that you found played a, a large role in people's viewpoints when they come after you or don't come after you and so on? Yes. So I think that motivated a lot of people uh, um, to talk to us, feeling that there was unfinished business here. Um, and a number of them were classmates of Brett Kavanaugh's, both from high school and Yale, who had actually gone to great lengths to try to reach the FBI and to get their views across. Whether or not they would have relevance um, remains to be seen. But Deborah Ramirez's lawyers gave the FBI a list of 25 people who potentially could be interviewed. None of them were interviewed. Um, And we also spoke to many, um, I know many of my classmates at Yale, um, who had tried, um, had been on, put on hold when they tried to reach the FBI. They showed up at FBI offices and were kind of given the runaround. Um, And so I think that a lot of people ended up feeling that this was not a, uh, a process that was conducted in good faith. Um, and you also had, frankly, senators who spoke to us who who felt very frustrated by it and that this tip line was actually kind of a dumping ground where um, it, they were collecting information but but not doing anything with it. Is there a world in which he does get impeached or is, is that just – I mean, based on what happens in 2020, um, you know, if, if a Democrat by some – chance wins like is there a world which they can impeach him they will impeach him what what would it take for that to happen well i think the senate is republican dominated so it would be challenging to do um, I think we're also focused on a, a different impeachment <laughs> at the moment. Um, so I'm not sure. There's always room for w- more <laughs> yeah. than one impeachment. <laughs> How much political will there is. But I think to your question about the outcome, what's interesting to us is just raising these questions of, you know, if somebody did something um, when they were a teenager um, and and nothing has turned up in the, in the 36 years since, is that nevertheless disqualifying or not? Um, and that, that there are some people who have argued – that you know, someone who is capable of doing that when they're young is cap- you know, has that in their character going forward. And there are others who feel as if there's potentially a redemption story here, where Kavanaugh sort of saw the er- error of his ways and improved his behavior, consciously or unconsciously, um, in the years since. Well, I mean, but there's also the stories that you detail, you know, where he just just kind of an asshole. Like there's a the the uh, in the book, he's drunk one night and starts banging on some guy's car. There's these are, I mean, I, I think back to kind of my high school years in Florida and uh, and the different personalities and what they were then is what they are now. Like it doesn't change. I don't think people really change. And it, it seems to me that maybe he's still kind of the same person. He just kind of figured out how to hit it, but, you know, hide it. Sorry, not hit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I guess I guess it's for 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 other people to decide. When you um, 
when you were kind of when you started the reporting so i'm always fascinated by when we were all doing our, our reporting on big stories and, and books and whatnot there's kind of this moment where you're like what that's insane that's this aha moment what was the aha moment for each of you in the reporting well, an aha moment is typically something where you're like, oh, this is the key to the rest of it. Um, I don't know if I had that, but I definitely had some surprises and some pretty compelling U-turns along the way. Um, Tell us about some of those. Yeah, so if I can pick one of those. Um, one of those was talking to Leland Kaiser. So she is the friend of Christine Blasey Ford's from high school, less in touch now, although still part of kind of a broader circle of alumni from that era who are friendly, um, who was alleged to be at the gathering on the night that uh, Ford says she was assaulted. And Kaiser had said all along that she didn't remember one way or another what had happened. Although last year she said, I believe Dr. Ford, I believe Christine. Um, we found out much more backstory to their friendship and Kaiser now and her her relations limited as they are with Dr. Ford. And then I did the first on the record interview with Kaiser. And essentially, Kaiser and, and Christine had talked last year privately, I think on Facebook Messenger or something like that, where Leland expressed concern, oh my gosh, like, did you cry out about this at the time and I didn't help you? And Christine said back, no, I never told anyone, including you. And as the months went by, well, really, as the weeks went by, Leland um, sat down, looked at some photographs of Kavanaugh from back then, kind of racked her memory and decided, actually, she didn't feel like she had ever seen Kavanaugh before. And she didn't think there were too many parties of that size at the time. And she, the net result of it was she didn't have confidence in Christine's account. And she told me about this in this interview that we had. And, and it was really remarkable. It was really astonishing. Um, because here was one of the few people that was ostensibly at the gathering actually casting doubt upon it. So I had to look really hard at that. And, and Robin and I sort of wrestled with that as we were kind of doing our summary chapter. And in the end, we just felt like if you take Leland's doubts piece by piece, they're totally reasonable doubts. Things like, I was spending most of my time at a golf shop at the Congressional Country Club, not at the Columbia Country Club, where Christine was swimming and diving that summer, or things like, I don't recall seeing Brett Kavanaugh, even though she admitted that she had dated Mark Judge, his friend. So clearly, they knew that group of boys. Christine had also dated one of those friends. All of it is to say that the things that gave her doubt were not necessarily contradictions of Christine's account. And the other thing is the use of memory. I mean, it's become clear, and we've spent a lot of time talking about memory in the course of this book. Mm -hmm. If something is not significant to you, you often don't record it, yeah. especially if you were 15 or 16 at the time, and especially if you were at a party where alcohol was involved. So the idea that people don't remember it, it needs to be taken into account, of course, but it's not dispositive as a contradiction. Yeah, I think that that's for me what what you know, and you talk a lot about this. But uh, I mean, look look at the beginning of the uh, of serial podcast. The the first fifteen minutes of it are talking about memory, and I think back to you know my own high school years, and I remember some moments with such clarity. It happened yesterday, and other moments, if you asked me, I wouldn't. I would be like, what, where, who. How do you, when you're doing the reporting for this and, um, and when you're talking to these people, how do you weigh w which, what to take into account and what not to when it comes to the memory of people? 
Well, one of the things that we found was we actually spoke to some sexual assault experts. And um, actually, in the case of Deborah Ramirez, her lawyer uh, represents many uh, victims of sexual assault. And one of the things he said that really stayed with me was that actually when women recount these stories, they are kind of by definition spotty, that that is sort of the nature of of the scarring that that, that trauma leaves, That, that if you actually have a story that is entirely cohesive, that's more suspect than one that is piecemeal. Um, They may, for example, um, very much remember who was over them, you know, in terms of who the uh, assailant was, but they may not remember how they got there or how they got home. So, for example, you know, given that Christine Blasey Ford was kind of criticized for not having those details, those are actually consistent with um, the behavior and memory of, of people who've been through something like that. You spent a lot of time with Christine and and talking to her and so on. And what um, does she regret coming forward? Does she, you know, you know, I haven't uh, asked her that specific question. Although I I have been asked that a couple of times now. Um, my sense is that if she had to do it again, she probably would do it because mm. she would tell you that her whole motivator was a sense of civic duty. And her attitude was, something happened to me when I was my kid's age. She has two sons who are either adolescents or teenagers. I forget exactly their age. And I wanted to tell the key decision makers about it in case they care. And to not come forward would not be okay in my book to do. So, um, and it was interesting too, when I spent time with her, I asked her to reminisce about her high school years, just in a general way. And one of the first things she shared with me was how at Holden Arms, which was her high school, which was a rival to my high school back in DC (laughs) in the single sex school scene. um, They took a lot of field trips to Capitol Hill, to Ford's Theater where Lincoln was shot, to the Lincoln Memorial, and all these other places that really kind of carved a place in her heart. Like she has quotes from the Lincoln Memorial hanging in her home. She likes to post them on Facebook every year. Um, And she just had this high respect for these institutions and wanted to make sure she did what she regarded as her part to kind of fully inform the process. So I think she's still that person, but I think she could not have foreseen how hideous the backlash would be and that continues to, I think, leave scar tissue. But to your point also, Nick, about what surprised us, one of the things that, that struck me um, that I hadn't expected was understanding, you know, people have ascribed so many kind of political strategic motivations to these women. Um, that was not what we found. We, You know, we, you, you see actually Christine Blasey Ford right up until almost the moment she testified hasn't hadn't completely um, gotten her head around the fact that she was going to be telling her story to the world on national television. And in the case of Deborah Ramirez, you know, many people point out that um, she didn't bring her story to the public. You know, the New Yorker heard about it and called her. Um, And even when she spoke to me, she talked about how she had never thought of what happened to her as sexual misconduct until she read it described that way in a magazine. So her her intention was she ultimately decided to to be honest about what had happened to her. But these were people who um, were not kind of women out there with an agenda. Tell Nick about the Ronan call. I mean, Deborah Ramirez describes just being at work. Um, she kind of works for a nonprofit that helps women's uh, victims of sexual violence in Boulder, Colorado. And she got a call from Ronan Farrow saying, you know, I'm calling about uh, Brett Kavanaugh's sexual m- misconduct at Yale. And she said, I don't know anything about that. And he said, no, I'm talking about when he exposed himself to you at a, at a dorm, drunken dorm party freshman year. And she said, oh, that. 
Hmm. Um, so she just hadn't really conceptualized it that way. And, and I think that's sort of an important detail. Is that kind of your aha moment, that, that, that talking to her about that? Or? Yeah, I mean, well, my aha moment with her was just – you know, there have been people who have questioned, you know, to me, what was such a big deal about what happened to her, you know, that it, it perhaps pales in comparison to um, Dr. Blasey Ford's assertions of being sort of pounced on top of and, and potentially fearing she was going to be raped and fearing for her life. Well, certainly on the spectrum of sexual misconduct, um, it is not as extreme, but it was still formative and damaging um, it wasn't just someone pulling down his pants at a dorm party, but having a penis thrust in her face, swatting it away, not realizing it was real, having um, grown up in a very sort of sheltered, working class background as a, as a good Catholic girl, and she hadn't planned to touch uh, a man's genitals until she was married. Um, that was humiliating, and as well as kind of just being the butt of the joke, having all <clears throat> these friends laughing at her for having kind of been duped into this. Um, she had been sort of targeted to drink in this drinking game, and it it reinforced a, a sense of inadequacy that she came to Yale with that I think, frankly, we could all be more sensitive to, which is um, she didn't feel like she necessarily belonged there the way others do who have a greater sense of entitlement. Well, I mean, to say that it's not important for for some people to say that it's it's almost like you know a serial killer doesn't murder someone first; they usually kill a cat, you know. So it's like it's like the stepping stone. I I, I keep coming back to this idea of like whoever this these people are in the beginning is who they are when they're older. Well, it's interesting you say that, Nick, because her, her attorney, John Clune, Deborah Ramirez's attorney, said this is kind of gateway behavior yeah. that basically um, it sets the table for worse um, forms, more severe forms of sexual assault. You you uh, track down some of the famous names that become became the butt of the SNL skit, you know, Squee and and Judge and these guys. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about that and how you how you found them and what they said and you know what that was like. So happy you're asking about that because that was one of the sort of interesting journeys of the reporting process. Mark Judge um, was hard to find, at least during the period that we were reporting this, which was kind of late 2018, early 2019. He was kind of itinerant. He uh, had stayed uh, for a few nights in Potomac, Maryland with like a family friend. Um, you may remember back during this period of 2018, during the confirmation process, he was hiding out at a friend's house in Bethany Beach um, on the Delaware shore. Uh, so he, he was staying with a friend at this time. I was looking and then he was staying with his sister who lives outside of Washington. So I went and knocked on these doors. I kind of heard generally where he was staying and I didn't get him, but after knocking on his sister's door and being turned away, um, but leaving a business card, I got a phone call from him basically just saying, you need to buzz off and stop bothering <laughs> me and my family. And, you know, I, I said I was sorry for that, but that I really wanted to talk to him. And clearly he was a key figure here. And he, he really didn't share a lot with me, but I at least made contact. And I also interviewed his older brother, Michael Judge some of which you can see in the book. Um, for what it's worth, Michael Judge um, has no idea whether this happened, um, but he's estranged from his brother. Um, so that was him. Squee never surfaced. Squee's real name is Chris Garrett. He's a school teacher uh, in the South. And uh, he is the person that dated Christine Blasey as a young woman and was at a member of the Columbia Country Club and was the vehicle through which she says she met Kavanaugh and Judge and all those other guys, like probably during the fall of 1981, possibly during the spring of 1982. She's not totally sure. Um, and he has never said anything, as far as I know, to any journalist 
um, and has also laid extremely low with his classmates from high school. I mean, he there was apparently talk at the Georgetown Prep reunion um, after Kavanaugh was confirmed about how people couldn't find Squee and what was his take on all of this. Um, and he got very badly smeared, by the way, in this process. Um, I mean, no one has disputed that he dated Christine and she has told me she thinks there's no way that he was involved in this incident on this night. Number one, they had broken up already, so she probably wouldn't have been hanging with him. But number two, she would have remembered him or his house because she had dated him, and that would be prominent in in her memory. Um, So he couldn't have been the one unnamed boy that was there. Um, But he was at one point on Twitter sort of pointed to as the person whose house it might have been, And this was by a a prominent Republican lawyer in D.C., and it was later taken down. But he's one of these guys that kind of got splashed with mud in the process. Do you feel bad for any of these people, uh, you know, along the way? Or is it more of just this is just the facts and here they are? I think we feel bad for everybody in a way. Yeah, Um, that's what I was was, going to say. You know, there were a lot of the victims here, a lot of casualties of this process and this experience. Uh, I think it was painful on all sides. I think it was painful for the country. Um, One of the things that really struck me was how much it speaks to how politicized the judiciary has become when it was supposed to be this kind of last bastion of of nonpartisanship. Um, And now it's completely infused with, you know, very strong um, kind of political uh, sort of wrangling and, and jockeying and and, and strategizing with, you know, people are sort of take to their corners and, and, and they're not really communicating in any uh, sort of honest way. I mean, you had Mitch McConnell um, saying, you know, Brett, Brett Kavanaugh was going to be confirmed at the outset. Um, and you had Senator Schumer saying, we're going to oppose him with everything I've got. Um, and I, I don't think that many minds were changed along the way. Do you think um, when you look at that, what you just said, that you, you, we have this moment in time where um, a lot of people, they have a, a difficult time kind of looking at the broad, a lot of the public, they have a difficult time looking at the broad sense of something. And so they pick on to one little thing and they focus on that. Storytelling in general is how we, we communicate with them through that. And do you think that this will be remembered as the story that kind of epitomizes the Me Too movement and the limitations of it? Or is this is this story still to be finished? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think at it, one level, it's the apotheosis of the Me Too movement in that Christine Blasey Ford sort of for many victims represented incredible bravery in coming forward and telling her story to the world in a way that was obviously incredibly difficult and at great per- personal cost. On the other hand, the fact that the outcome was the same as Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, you know, in 1991... Um, I think leaves some people feeling discouraged and that that speaks to um, uh, a lack of meaningful progress. Um, And so uh, I think on both sides, um, people can kind of read into this um, as uh, meaningful in in terms of a step forward or a step back. I always like to cite some statistics here, uh, which we have some interesting ones. (laughs) Um, So in our book, we cite this poll that was conducted last December, December 2018, by a research outfit called Perry Undum. They're actually just out with a new survey that addresses American attitudes toward Kavanaugh, among other things. So this is 1,000 registered voters 
who were polled in mid-September of 2019. And uh, 59% of these people said it was likely that Kavanaugh lied under oath about his teenage years, compared with 57% last December. So you see that it's small, but there's an uptick in people who don't feel that he has credibility since then. 41% of people said the Senate did the wrong thing in confirming him. That's the same number as it was last December. Um, 40% for what it's worth said the Senate was right, and 19% were not sure. Meanwhile, 47% believed he would be swayed by his own political beliefs. I should point out I'm quoting a Vox Media article here, (laughs) um, compared with 35% who said he would be impartial. So, and the other thing... um, The poll is just out. I haven't had a chance to review the whole thing. But at least as of last December, Perry Undum said that people believed Christine Ford over Brett Kavanaugh by a 16% margin. Mm. So you see that people found her credible and at least through a small majority did not think the Senate should have confirmed him at the time. If you look at similar statistics from Hill and Thomas, you find that a vast majority of people polled still thought that Thomas should be confirmed. It's so it's so crazy. It's I mean it's just a parallel of 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 the political spectrum in the United States and it just it's it's so mind-boggling to kind of see the way people approach it. And if if he was a democrat, there would have just been the same numbers but turned. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's wild. When you um uh you quote his mom in the in the book uh um and who is a judge and I also found it fascinating there's all these kind of overlaps with the Ford and the Kavanaugh family maybe you can get into that a little bit but but it feels almost like you kind of use his mom as the as the judge in the story can can you talk about that a little bit Yeah we thought that was appropriate because Martha Kavanaugh who was a prosecutor and then a judge in Maryland um, is someone that her son Brett referred to a lot during his uh, speech making last year, and including, I believe, on the September 27th hearings. And when she was uh, a young lawyer, she had she had switched careers from teaching to the law and gone to law school while Brett was coming up through school himself and uh, become a prosecutor. And she would practice her closing lines at the dinner table, which were often, use your common sense, what rings true and what rings false. And so we did this fairly exhaustive investigation into the Kavanaugh background, career, and these allegations over the course of roughly a year. We had all these facts and new context and details that we wanted to share with people that were illuminating to us ourselves, but we still had gaps. You know, I still didn't get to have a good conversation with Mark Judge. You know, I didn't get to interview Chris Garrett. Um, Christine Ford, although her lack of memory and presence of memory is very consistent with sexual assault survivors, there are gaps in her memory. So there's still a lot we don't know. And we thought, you know, we've really looked hard at this. We've spent time with the people. And we think it's appropriate to kind of take the whole thing and look at it through a prism of common sense. So that was kind of our prism for which we through which we assessed some of our findings. What was the um, just kind of bringing this back to earth now a little bit, what was the fallout for, for a lot of these people? What was the fallout for Kavanaugh? I mean, I, I remember um, the photo, I, I think it was during the confirmation hearing of Kavanaugh's wife, who does not look happy in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, he was, uh, he's no longer teaching, right? Um, you know, what was the fallout for all of these folks and, and how it kind of played out? Yeah, I mean, I think for for all of them, there has there have there have been um, just 
great personal cost in terms of, you know, Christine Blasey Ford has not returned to teaching. She still has she still had to move around a lot and kind of guard her her, her privacy and her anonymity to the degree possible in her community now and I think is, is very self-protective. Um, you know, both she and Deborah Ramirez experienced um, you know, death threats and ugliness um, in on social media and elsewhere, and um, and that was problematic. On the other hand, they also both received an outpouring of positive support from victims who said, you know, you've told my story, um, you've emboldened me to come forward, you've made me feel less alone in the world. Um, from you know, men who said you've helped me understand how to talk to my sons better and make sure that these are, are could turn out to be good men. Even doctors saying you help me uh, think about how I talk to my patients. Uh, so even uh, Deborah Ramirez has this line in our book where she says there's so much good that came out of it. There's so much good to come. I think she has a more optimistic take that perhaps they've contributed to a meaningful conversation in this country. Um, I think for Brett Kavanaugh, you know, what you do see is uh, there was, you know, one school, George Mason, I guess, where there was protesting him teaching there. Um, and you also see him kind of keeping a low profile on the court, frankly, which I think is consistent with new uh, judges anyway, new justices. But he also has reason to try to not bring um, a sort of any uh, undue attention to the court because of himself. And he has he's mindful of his legacy and certainly wants to to turn the page on his reputation and and really be known for his jurisprudence now rather than this. He's mostly centrist, right? Problematic. It's a, a little bit to so, the right. So far. He, I mean, he looks like he's certainly conservative of an establishment conservative, but he does look like he he could even, our colleague Adam Liptak said, who covers the court, that he could turn out to be the swing vote and actually fill um, Kennedy's shoes in that way. Um, and he has had kind of nuanced decisions um, that have to some extent pleased his conservative base and, and others, you know, they have felt he hasn't been uh, kind of right wing enough. We, we've heard it observed by people who watch the court that there's a feeling that Clarence Thomas was sort of radicalized by his experience with the That's confirmation. My next question was actually going to be, but yeah. Yeah, and he is probably the most conservative judge on a now kind of predominantly conservative court. And, and I mean, we'll never know what he would have done in the absence of the Anita Hill testimony, right? But like he really very much doubled down on a conservative worldview during his many years on the court. Kavanaugh, however, if anything, and again, this is, you know, some people's opinion, um, has sort of leaned center. Um, and he has voted with the majority much of the time. He voted with the majority of justices more often than any other single justice. He voted very often with uh, Chief Judge, Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, and just briefly to look at a few cases, um, he has surprised some people with positions he's taken. For example, he wrote the majority opinion in a case that allowed an antitrust suit against Apple to go forward. He wrote the majority opinion in a case, uh, Flowers versus Mississippi, that dealt with issues of race in jury selection and essentially found that um, the jury selection for um, a, murder, a murder trial for somebody on death row in Mississippi, a black man who's been tried by a white DA six times for a quadruple murder. And if you listen to this podcast in the dark, it certainly sounds as though this person's been framed. Um, although I haven't done my own reporting on that, but that's kind of what it suggests. Um, uh, the ruling was that the jury selection had been racially motivated and, and was unjust. So those are two kind of surprise cases. In other cases, um, uh, June Medical versus Gee, which deals with abortion issues in Louisiana, he very much kind of took a 
a fairly standard conservative position and and defended regulations that would have had the effect probably of closing all but one of Louisiana's abortion clinics. He also was part of a group that allowed uh, the Pentagon to carry out President Trump's ban on transgender people in the military. Do you um, – I remember when my last book came out, um, I – after the fact – I'm an exhaustive reporting experience too. And then after the fact, there were people that reached out that – some that I had tried to get a hold of, some that I didn't even know existed and with their own stories and things that I had didn't know about. Have you had that happen with this book? It has been happening. Um, there's been some stuff over the transom that I think Kate and I are, are interested in, in pursuing and to some extent have already begun to look into. No, no clues, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Nothing yet that we're ready to report. Um, uh, all right, last couple of questions. Uh, one thing that I – so you, when, the, when the book came out, you had this excerpt debacle at the Times and so on, and your book became politicized itself. Like what does that feel like to be to – be, to the thing that you've worked on for a year and it's kind of now the talking point of senators and Republicans and Democrats to like bash each other the head. Like what, what does that feel like? You know, yes. it's, it's frustrating, but not surprising. I mean, we knew that we would take some incoming. We didn't know what the issue would be. Um, and, you like know, sticking your head out of a foxhole. Being kind like, of. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, actually I was on the phone uh, with one of our sources on Capitol Hill last week. And the person said, you know what, I know you're not a political animal, but this is the world of politics, and by default, you are, and you're being treated as such. So it, it was it was just incredible to be in the kind of the the, the crosshairs yeah, of wild to watch <laughs> a huge it. backlash. Um, yeah, I'm sure it was uh, it was wild to watch it. I, I felt for you guys. I, I hope it was not too painful, and uh, and the Twitter wasn't too mean. Although that's all really Twitter does these days. Um, so last question for you: um, If you were to kind of uh, predict, you know, in 30 years, you know, this is we look back at the Thomas case and uh, and we still talk about it today. Uh, do you think that that the that this case is still how he will be remembered, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, or do you think that that it will uh, other things will come about in the Me Too movement and it'll kind of blend into history? What do you think? I think it depends a lot on his record on the court, frankly. I mean, there is a lot of fear that he may be um, decisive in overturning Roe v. v. Wade, and that's a, a real fear out there. And, you know, certainly if that happens, it will kind of confirm some of these uh, doomsayers on the left who are who are sort of viewed his, can't, his, his nomination as a real threat to their interests. Um, but I think it will also be, it's part of this long history now that we see of when the court kind of became political, sort of starting with the Bork um, confirmation and then Clarence Thomas and then the Republicans sort of barring Merrick Garland from even being considered um, uh, for the judiciary, um, where this is just this, that kind of a, a new low in, in terms of a chapter of an intensely uh, politicized process where judges are no longer really evaluated on the merits um, um, without can it be can the can the Supreme Court be depoliticized do you think or this is just the this is just the I mean I, I have a theory that we're eventually that we're whether it's from Trump or the next president or something if we don't get killed by AI robots or something like that that we will that that we're gonna there's gonna be an exhaustion of all of this and the, there'll be kind of somewhat of a reset maybe not on the edges but in the middle there will be 
Is yeah, that- I, I confess I haven't looked that deeply into this, but um, I understand that candidate Putin Pete Buttigieg has a really interesting proposal for sort of expanding the size of the court mm-hmm. and having certain justices um, nominated through a traditional process and others selected by their peers, which is kind of a novel proposal. It's a little bit hard to see major change happening. I mean, maybe over the course of 30 years, yes. But what we see is that the political world is in so many ways just sort of ossified and kind of lagging the private sector in terms of reactions to things like the Me Too movement and the evolution of processes and behavior due to accountability um, that it's hard to see anything soon. And I have to say for a recent and thorough background on how we got here, have to give a shout out to our colleague Carl Hulse. I mean, he just wrote this book called Confirmation Bias about basically how Mitch McConnell during his tenure as Senate Majority Leader has run uh, the judicial confirmation processes and why he and, by extension, President Trump have had such a successful run about of getting their judges on, on courts, including the Supreme Court. It has become so politicized and it's been so scarring for the Senate, apparently, and, and the, the lawmakers who are involved. Um, there's just deep resentment and regret about a lot of things, but there have also been rule changes and new traditions started that are going to be really hard to unroll. Terrifying note to end on. Ugh, always talking about Mitch McConnell as a terrifying note. Uh, the book is education, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Robin and Kate, thank you so much. This thank has you. been a fascinating conversation, and it's an amazing book, so thank you. Thanks to my guests today, Robin Pogrim and Kate Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors this week, BMW. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you next week for a very special guest who you'll have to come back to hear who it is. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.